0: Good morning everyone. Now I like preaching in the morning because um, I always say morning no matter what time of day it is So today I might actually get it right oh, I'm doing this upside down here we go there we go I've got there in the end. now uh, we've gone from my very short wife is there any, I wonder whether I can at least turn this up a bit maybe. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Well, like, like we've just read a moment ago, we're going to be um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43. Now, I will be like walking through the passage. So, if you had it open in front of you while we go through it, I think that will be uh, very beneficial for you all. Um, and it is it is a real great privilege to be with you today. It's the first time I've preached in front of an actual congregation that's not digital pixels on a screen in in a very long time. So, it's really great to see real human being faces. And I've got my daughter waving at the back. See, that couldn't happen on Zoom. It's great. So, uh, so before we, before we uh, look into God's word and see what he has to, to say to us this morning, let's just have a quick time of prayer. Lord and heaven, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we have the gift of your word, Lord, and we pray that as we open it now, as we, uh, as we walk through the passage that we're looking at this morning, Father, we pray that you'll speak to us and that you'll write some truth in our hearts, Lord, that we'll get to know you better and that we'll be able to worship you through um, having what you have to learn for us this morning, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 42 and 43. Well, a quick history, very, very quick overview of the book of Psalms in general. The book of Psalms is actually not just one book. It's actually five books that's been pulled together over time to make up the book of what we're used to being called the Psalms, where it's actually five individual books. And now, Psalm 42 and 43 this morning is actually the first two Psalms of the second book. So we're getting introduced into the second book of the Psalms. And you might be wondering, well, why are we why are we looking at two Psalms this morning? And the reason why is because it's actually one song, it's actually one poem, and it's kind of been split up into two psalms over over the years but really it's quite clearly as we go through it together this morning you'll see that it's quite clearly one poem one beautiful song um, that the psalmist has written and also if you notice in your Bibles I don't know whether your Bibles have this but at the top it will say um, it'll say from uh, for the for the choir director a maskil of the sons of Korah now the sons of Korah were just to give you again just to give you an idea of where the writers are coming from where the psalmist is coming from this morning and um, they, the sons of Korah were descendants of Levi, and the idea was that they were meant to be the, the, the band of the worship team, if you like, um, when, uh, in the temple. So they're used to being in the temple, where they want to be is in God's presence, singing, sing, playing God's music in the temple. So that's the context of this psalm this morning. Now, we're going to be talking about a tragic reality of living in a, in a fallen world. And that tragic reality is living in despair, or having despair in this world. And the psalmist is going to be going through and, ex- and going through his experience of that uh, as we read through this passage. So this poem is made up of three stanzas or three verses of this poem, and it's a, it can be thought of as three different angles uh, that you can look at to spare for. And those three angles are, oh, as I press the button, the screen disappears. But the first one is uh, the first five verses, one to, Psalm 42 verses 1 through to 5, and that's uh, that's what I, a section that I've titled the drought. Then we've got Psalm 42 verses 6 through to 11. That's the second stanza, and that's what I'm calling the drowning. And then finally, the, the third stanza is all of Psalm 43. Uh, that's what I'm calling the discouragement. So three different angles of despair that we're going to be going through. And it's interesting and worthy and worth noting that throughout the two psalms, we can see the cycle, the cycle of um, lament and hope, and lament and hope. And you'll see that there's that there's clearly this cyclical nature of. Um, having, this, having moments of, dis- of despair and lament, and then having moments of hope. And you'll, you'll notice that as we go through, and that'll be a running theme as we go through the two Psalms this morning. So, and if you look carefully, you'll notice that, there, that there's the same declaration of hope marking the end of each stanza. And that's how you know that it's the end. There's actually this declaration of hope. Um, and again, we're going to be looking at a, a, bit, a bit more about that in a moment so the rights of these two Psalms is clearly experiencing this great time of despair but let's take a quick moment to look at to, to think about what despair actually is what is it to be in despair well despair can be thought of as the, the, as the state of being in the absence of hope so it's having without hope but it's it's quite literally the opposite of hope hope is having confident expectation in something uh, or someone and despair is not having anything to root your confidence in so it's having literally a lack of a root of that confidence and so without that root we're going to be consumed with chaos and having literally nothing to uh, give us confidence and so we're going to move on to our first passage the first of, uh, of the stanzas the drought so thinking about verse 1 the psalmist be- begins at uh, the first verse with this picture of, of a deer desperately looking for water like like a deer if you think about it like a deer in a desert far from its natural habitat away from its its place where it normally would live far from home and just like the author's spirit this deer is dry is is living in a dry land thirsting for god maybe the psalmist is physically away from home maybe away from his home in the southern kingdom of judah which will be where the temple is maybe he's drawing on an experience of him living in the desert south of, of Judah, that land that we, that in the Old Testament we would call the wilderness, and that where it's perpetually dry and desolate. I'm sure we can all relate to that feeling on that hot summer's day, where your mouth is dry and your, your body is screaming for water. I remember being a kid and I remember running around in the summer and coming in and I was so desperate for a glass of water, and I didn't like water growing up, so that was a big deal. And in that moment, there is literally, there's nothing more that you long for than this glass of water, this cold glass of water. And there is rarely a better feeling than downing that clear, cold glass of water when you're desperately thirsty. But the psalmist isn't speaking, of course, of his physical thirst. He's speaking of his spiritual thirst for God. Then moving on to verse 2. He's speaking of that time in our Christian walk when everything seems stale and dry and wholly weary. And it's interesting that no matter how dry in spirit the psalmist is, he still recognizes that God should be the subject of his desire. He still desires God, but there's a dryness and a weariness. His his very soul thirsts for God. And the question we have before us then is this, is that do, uh, do we thirst for the living God like the psalmist does? Does our hearts this morning reflect the heart of the poet in verse two? Does the psalmist, well, the, the psalmist here is talking of um, from a land that's far from where he understood the presence of God to be in the temple, far from God's people and God's place of worship, the temple on Mount Zion. He was in a desolate foreign land. Now, if there was any consequence of this wretched pandemic that I'm sure we're all fed up of hearing and talking about. It's that that there's been this spiritual drought. There's been this spiritual desertification of the church. And I don't just mean the church as an organization, although I think it has affected the church as an organization, but I I mean the individuals. I think there's been a a, a real spiritual drought that, that people have been feeling over the last year and a half or longer. So do you feel spiritually dry this morning. Maybe your soul is in this desolate place. Maybe you feel as if God is in a distant land, far from where you're spiritually dwelling currently. A good test would be, is prayer a regular part of your life? And maybe it's been a while since you uh, uh, dived into the clear life-giving waters of God's word. Maybe our hearts have become thirsting for something else. So it's been it's been a tough year and a half or so socially, yes, but especially spiritually. And I'm sure a lot of you are feeling the same thing. I know I know so many mature, long-time Christians that have felt this spiritual drought at a time when we've been allowed when we haven't been allowed to meet together. It's been really tough, and just. Like the psalmist, we haven't been able to come together as God's people, which is what the psalmist is talking about. He wants to be in the temple singing together with God's people. And again, just like the psalmist, we've been longing to be back at that place where we know God to be present. Um, maybe, maybe this isn't you this morning. Maybe, maybe you haven't been feeling that. But you must be prepared for a time when your spiritual landscape does seem to dry up like a long abandoned well. That ultimately, no Christian is immune to this desertification in spirit. We need to be ready for it happening. If, he's not, if you're not in that now, that time will come and you need to be prepared for all that. So moving on to, to verse three of this first stanza, for the, for the psalmist, it's talking about, um, he's, saying, he's saying that my, my tears have been my food day and night while, I, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And so for the psalmist, his tears have been continuous, day and night. Now, if you're anything like me, we're great at putting on a front, aren't we? And most of us struggle to show how we we actually really feel. Because we're scared, ultimately, of what others might think. And let's that, and be honest, there can be a stigma in church, can't there? That, that we must always look our best and display to the world how great things are for us. There is that stigma in church, or at least there can be, and that's a trap that we can fall into. There's There's this feeling of an expectation that nothing can be wrong with me. I must look like I am doing great. When deep down in the privacy of our homes, we're in an arid spiritual place, in a place that is dry and yet having no shortage of tears. We may often feel that the world is mocking us, especially when we're in that moment of the world, you might feel, they may not literally say it to us, but we may feel the world saying to us, well, where is your God then? And you can especially feel this as soon as you tell your friends or colleagues that you're a Christian, suddenly, at least I felt this, suddenly you feel like you're on the spotlight, suddenly you feel like you're a representation for all of Christianity, and that all the eyes are looking at you, and you can just feel that question, "Where, where is your God then? Prove it to me. well when we are being watched by the world let's be honest what will they see will they find god in our words and our actions one of my favorite passages in scripture and this is one that i get mocked apparently i use it in in every in every every opportunity i get and to be fair i'm using it now so maybe maybe they're right but it is it is one of my favorite passages and it's in luke 6:45 and it says out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak that's what jesus said and the reason why i love it so much is because it is so true and it's always stuck with me it's one of those things the the other passages um, is that uh, you'll know them by their fruits and that it's a similar sort of idea that it's that if our hearts are devoid of hope in god well then our actions and words will ultimately reflect that that whatever overspills out of our heart is what ends up being presented to the world where is your god maybe we're asking that question of ourselves. Where is God when I'm so desperate for him? When the psalmist records being asked this question, it, we, he answers it himself, actually, in verse 4. His answer is, it may seem a bit unusual to us, but his answer was, in the festivals. That's where God is. And and he's actually, what he's doing, I believe, is that he's remembering these annual pilgrimages that they that they go through, and that the that the choirs are particularly involved in in those in those festival times in the temple, where they're celebrating God's triumph in the history of salvation, they're celebrating what God has done in the history of the Jews. So essentially, what he's doing is he's answering. He's saying that well, God is present among His gathered people. That's where God is. He's saying that. God is just as active today as He was in those great days that, the, that these festivals are commemorating. That's the God that we're worshiping. That's where He is. He's 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 been in the, our history, and that same God is active with us today. And we're celebrating together. And that's where God is. And by celebrating what God has done in the past, He's being reminded of what God, of who God is today. And of course, we as Christians we should do the same. That we need to remember what God has done in the past and have that. Have that guide us and to, 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 to help us be buoyant today and it is good to recall what god has done in the past and remind ourselves that god has never forsaken us it is good to remember the times of of great joy when we have worshipped god together as one people of god the times when god has brought us through those trials that seemed like at the time like a difficult and long pilgrimage when we ask ourselves where is your god we can point to those times and remember that that same God hasn't left you or me. No matter how dry or spiritual, how, spiri- how dry and, sp- and arid our landscape might be, might be today spiritually, that the rain—we need to remember that the rain will come and the drought will end. And we must always remember that while we were sinners, it was that 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 we got that living that life-giving uh, salvation from Jesus that. that while we we're living that life of sin, while we we're deserving of death, that's when Christ died for us. Such love that will do that for us when we do not deserve it, will never abandon those that he paid such a great cost to have. So, moving on to verse 5. And now we come to the first refrain, which is this moment of hope, the first hope, um, lament hope cycle, which also ends the first um, the first stanza in the poem. Okay, so we've got to the end of our first stanza, and the, uh, the psalmist writes, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Now also, I, I will say that I, I uh, read from and preach from the NASB, so it might sound and read slightly different to what you guys are seeing in your NIV Bibles, but I, I think it's a good thing to, to, to be reminded that that this is a Hebrew text being translated into English. and I think by seeing the different translations, it gives you a better understanding of what was really being said. So I think it's a good thing. But just to make sure if if it's confusing a bit as to why I'm reading not the exact same words, it's because I'm reading from the NESB. Now, often we find ourselves in a spiritual drought. drought, And we we find it's, it's a mystery as to how we got there sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes it seems to sneak up on us. As to how, how have I got to this point? We know God is good. We know he loves us. Yet, I am in such despair. How can that be? We can feel ashamed. We can feel embarrassed. Because we know as Christians, we shouldn't feel this way. We may be in that place this morning. Well, the three stanzas in these two psalms have this common blueprint uh, or this pattern in tackling how we may be feeling, so these are things. These are things, that I, in my opinion, are what's drawn out of the text, and you'll see these same, this same blueprints in all three stanzas. So, I believe the first thing we need to do is is let it go. The psalmist here is prepared to go to, to let it go by bringing out to, uh, to, to bring his despair out into the open before God. He's letting it go to God. The very act of writing this poem is bringing his troubles and anguish before God. Being honest to yourself and to God is the beginning of restoration in joy and peace. You need to let it go. We should also be honest with one another, not just before God. And of course, this doesn't mean that we should like draw attention to ourselves and to wallow in our sorrows in public. Um, but it does mean finding... A fellow believer, whom you trust, and believe that they are this mature, that they're mature in the faith, and someone that you will, uh, that you know will give you sound advice and true loving support. At verse five, like I've said, we're at the at the end of this first lament hope cycle. Which this cycle of lament hope can be so descriptive of our lifelong pilgrimage to heaven. We'll have times of utter darkness. But in those times, we must trust that the light will come. And when we're in those times of lament, we need to know that that times of hope will come. And in times of hope, we must be prepared for those times of lament. So we need to be prepared for wherever we are in that cycle in life. So the first thing is to let it go. The second thing is to make ourselves think. And to answer the objections that we've presented ourselves with. The psalmist has been asked where is your God and he answered among his people and active today just as he was long ago he answered his own objection and we find that there's great power in simply being honest before God and before one another and when we often when we hear out loud what we're what we're thinking what we're saying suddenly we find ourselves answering our own objections and by speaking out our problems out loud especially it often helps us think much more clearly. So we need to be able to answer. We need to honestly answer our own objections. Speak them out loud. Let it go. And make conscious decisions of how you're going to answer those own questions. And the last thing is we must pull ourselves together. That We, we must make it a habit to talk to ourselves and to talk to our soul rather than listening to our souls. We read... Our psalmist is doing just this in verse 5. He is commanding his spirit, hoping God for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. There was an old minister once who wrote, um, ask yourself why you're so downcast and make sure you give yourself a rational answer. Remind yourself that hope means a patient but expectant waiting for God to act. Tell yourself that your day of praise will certainly come though in God's time, not yours. So we now read on. We're going to move on to our second stanza. Okay? So we move on from this spiritual drought into this drowning in this deluge. So a very stark change. So, looking at verse 7, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me, the psalmist writes. So now, instead of the dry land, we're drowning when we're thrown into the world of turmoil. The picture is being painted of someone in this large body of water, and who can hear the roaring of these unseen waterfalls in the distance, and being filled with terror at the sense of this imminent danger. These waterfalls are coming, you can hear it. And there's pictures of you, of, of, and there's this picture of being dragged under the under the waves, and he's fighting to 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 gasp for breath, and he's he's being dragged under once again by these unforgiving waters. Now, anyone who's ever been dragged underwater, I know that's a pretty niche (laughs) thing, but anyone who's ever experienced that will know about the about the abstract panic. I'm smiling at Chris because he knows what's about to come up. Um, the abstract panic, and it gives you this sensation that is is very difficult to describe, and it gives you the sense that this is a very real danger. Okay, now, quite a few years ago now, Beth decided to treat me to, and I'm, I think I was eighteen at the time. So just be prepared for what you're about to see. Okay. <laughs> uh, but Beth treated me to this, this white water rafting at the at um at the Trent, well So waters off the Trent, as a birthday gift. Um, and I, I remember, I'm about to show you a moment. I remember we were on the we were on the raft, and there was this particularly aggressive patch of water, and it threw the entire the entire raft over. So everyone, there's no choice about it. You're going over. That's just the end of it. Now, it just so happens that my sister and my now brother-in-law, who wasn't my brother-in-law at the time, Chris, were on that trip with me, along with Beth. Now, you're 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 about. You're about to see pictures of me, and I, your, your immediate reaction will be, wow, how on earth has he not changed in 12 years? <laughs> um, and I'll tell you what you're going to think. You're going to think Chris has genuinely not changed in 12 years, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is quite impressive. Okay, hang on. Sorry, I've just um, closed where I was at with this. But we'll go through it. Here we go. Look. There we go. That's, if you're ever wondering what I'd look like without a beard and losing three stones, <laughs> that's what I'd look like. Just trying to get back to where I was at with this. Perfect. Okay. So, now there was this moment that I didn't realize happened at the time. Okay. And see if you can spot what happens. Okay. So, here it turns out that someone was on the side. I didn't know about this. Someone on the side was taking photos, and they took a whole load of photos one after another. And you kind of get this stop frame footage of what happened moment by moment. Okay. So, if you're wondering where I and Beth are, oh, actually, look, you can see there's Chris at the back there, and there's Nina there. And there's me and Beth at the front, and there's my brother at the back there. So, it's a great memory, long time ago. But so Beth is on this, this raft with me, and if you're wondering where I am, that's me there, and that's Bethia there. Okay, my future my future wife who I love very dearly. So the raft goes over, and you can see we're going, we're going, and uh, yes, I push her straight under the water, <laughs> straight under, and then she's she's entirely gone. I'm still on top. She's still gone. And if you're wondering, there's just still a little bit of a foot there. She's entirely under the water, and uh, that's it. We're now all gone under the water. We're all gone. Okay. Um, so, if you're wondering what Chris looked like on the way back up, that's uh, that's what that's what happened at the time. So, uh, sorry about that, Chris. Sorry about that. But there we go. Okay. Enough fun. Get back to the serious stuff. Okay. Now. It may have been incriminating, but I had no choice. Okay, I didn't mean to do that. You're getting thrown off, you've got absolutely no choice as to what happens when you get thrown off that, that boat. And now what's interesting is I don't remember any of this. Beth came back to me afterwards and told me off, saying, you pushed me into the water. And I'm like, no, I didn't. And then she, we, found this, this, we found this set of photos, and I totally pushed her under the water. But I wasn't aware of any of that that took place with Beth. I don't remember any of that. But what I do remember, we're going to pull it back in, what I do remember is the terror of being forced under the water, under the rushing waters. That's the bit that I remember. I don't remember anything else in that moment. All you remember is being thrown under the water and the sheer abstract panic and being overwhelmed to the point that I couldn't, genuinely, I couldn't discern what was up or what was down. You, You see water everywhere, and it is terrifying. Now, some of us may be feeling that the waves and billows of life are consuming us just like it did for me and Beth and you might be feeling that it's all getting a bit too much to bear and maybe you're being inundated by the pressures of life and maybe it's all feeling a bit too much. Maybe you're feeling like you're being tossed and turned by the chaos of this of this broken world. Maybe it's our expectations that have let us down and now those very things that we were relying on have overwhelmed us to despair. Or maybe it's sin that's consuming us, filling us with this debilitating guilt, moving us to push God and his word away. And maybe we're thinking, well, if we can abandon the judge, God, maybe we can somehow escape the judgment. And it's interesting that it isn't that the psalmist describes the waves and turbulence. Well, it's interesting, actually, that the psalmist is describing the waves and turbulent waters as being God's waves and waters. The very waves that are consuming you or consuming us are under the control of the almighty God, who is ultimately sovereign over all things, including those waves. And nothing happens outside of that power and sovereignty and just when we think it's too much to bear we read the psalmist on in verse 8 psalm 42 verse 8 and he reads the lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night a prayer to the god of my life now all those years ago in that raft we were all thank god wearing a life jacket and As we were being plunged into those murky Trent waters, it was in those moments that I actually felt the purpose of the life jacket. I was was out of control. I had no idea where I was or which direction I was. But the life jacket pulled me straight up to safety. And you could feel it pulling you up to safety. And just in the same way, just as the deluge of despair washes over us in this world, we're reminded that actually we have a spiritual life jacket. We must never forget that God always wants what's best for us. God is using his sovereignty to command his loving kindness into our lives in the daytime, just like the psalmist was writing. And he's commanding a song of praise to him in our hearts through our tears at night. And just like my life jacket in the deep and disorientating waters, God is able to pull us up and out of the deluge that we may be in. Having a routine of prayer and reading is super important. We need to pray to God and to open up to him and bring our tears to him in worship. We need to remember to always have a song of praise in our hearts, always. So verse 9, when the waves of guilt and life wash over us, we need to pray to our rock, the immovable, Though we may feel the rush of this ever moving world, and it is a busy, ever changing world around us, well, God remains the same. He's unchanging. Even when we feel like praying, like the psalmist, Where are you, God? God, why have you, for- why have you forgotten me? You must know that our experience doesn't override the fact that God is for us and not against us. God is good. God has a plan to work all things for the good of those who love Him. That very famous verse. We need to trust that our heavenly Father will work our circumstances for our good. That's something we need to just have trust in God for. Verse 10, the psalmist talks about his, his having the shattering of his bones. I know that NIV uh, writes that slightly differently, but that's literally what it's saying. When the psalmist is talking of um, when, when he's talking of the shattering of his bones, he's speaking of a pain, an experience that is affecting his whole self, like as if your body is being shattered, and that no part of him is left untouched. And maybe as we're being reviled and oppressed by our enemies, we can feel as though God has abandoned us. Now, despair has a funny way of of affecting every part of us. It affects every experience, and it can warp our thoughts and emotions. And in this this stanza, we see the same pattern of dealing with despair that we looked at earlier. The psalmist is, ultimately, he's letting it go. He's bringing out how he's feeling to God. He's answering his own objections. He's saying that God, being the immovable rock, must be the same all-loving, all-powerful God in the good old days as the days of despair. And ends with with the psalmist, with him pulling himself together. He's commanding himself... To yet hope in God and praise him. He is still our help and our God, despite what we may be feeling. All right, on to Psalm 43. The last stanza, okay, the last verse in our poem, the discouragement. So, looking specifically at verses 1 through to 3, the first three verses of 43... The psalmist talks about being delivered, uh, for God to deliver me from the deceitful and unjustful man. And then he goes on to talk about the oppression of the enemy. Now, this feeling of oppression by the world continues into this third stanza from the second stanza. This feeling of oppression by the enemy moves over into this stanza. Now, we live in a world so dissatisfied and confused that it's brought into question everything that I would consider self-evident, all those truths that are self-evident, evident. and the, in the vain hope of finding the satisfaction, they are start, rather than uh, accept what I believe are self-evident truths, I think they bring all those things into question. Every object reality has been turned into this subjective opinion, in the desperate attempt to find an answer to their dismay the world either simply denies the truth or worse, it distracts itself from having to deal with the truth. And it's amazing how well the world has become, how good the world has become the experts in distraction. And if our secular society were to stop and think for a moment, I think that they'll realize that without God, they're without purpose, that they're without value and ultimately They're totally without hope. They need the distraction to stop them having to think. And they mock us and hate us because I believe that we ultimately remind them of their hopelessness. It's like God's light highlights their darkness. And again, I think back to a time when many years ago now, uh, Beth used to do running. She now, I think, should rather not do running and do other activities for... I, th- I think you'd hate running more than any other activity now. But back in the days when she used to do running, she, she, there was this one time when she went out a little later than she would normally go running. And this analogy is on Beth running because I, I don't run. So this is the best story of running. And she went, she went out a little, late, a little bit later than she normally would. And although it was light when she set off, it was not l- long into a run that it began to get darker and the, the sun was going down. And soon, on her way back, she was struggling to see. And ultimately, she she tripped over this tree root that had, like, raised the concrete pavement, um, and she didn't see it, and she cut her knees up in her hands. I remember that at the time. And it's amazing as as Christians that the deceitful and unjust people around us, who, who have no hope, can slowly bring that darkness into our hearts. We may set out with light, but the darkness can come so slowly that you don't notice the transition until one day the light is dimmed to twilight, And then you stumble at the first unexpected obstacle and get hurt. So, we need to constantly be examining ourselves and praying to our God of light. To send out his light and truth to lead us. And we need to be careful not to fall into the same folly as the world. We cannot distract ourselves and expect hope and light to be sustained in our lives. And if we mimic the world, well, we'll ultimately we will share in its despair. Instead, we're told in Scripture to mimic Christ, who is the opposite of this world, this fallen world. Because he is his hope. Looking at verse 4 of Psalm 43, then I will go to the altar of, of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. So when, when we come to God in our desperation, his truth will light the path out of our misery. And he will once again be our exceeding joy. So we need to be in the habit of letting out our despair to God and make ourselves think we need to learn to preach to ourselves a sermon of hope we have in God, especially through our times of pain and the times when we're feeling hopeless. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I've put it on the screen for you, he says... We do not want to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Now now we know why God allows us to go through times of despair. This is what Paul is hinting at here. It's when we reach the point of despair... And as Paul puts it, even of life, we have learned an important lesson. We've learned that we cannot trust in ourselves or, by extension, in the world around us. But we are to trust and place our faith and hope in God who raises the dead. He is able to raise our dry, drowning, discouraged, dying spirits to new life. And then again, the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, we have a living hope because we have a living God, Jesus. Our hope is founded on the confident expectation that Jesus can and has accomplished promises that he made to us by the living, almighty God. We've been born again into a living hope. And it's not just simply this wishful thinking type of hope, but a living gift from the Heavenly Father. So, as we look to wrap up, just to make sure that you know, this is coming to an end of promise. Whether we're thirsting in the drought, or we're drowning in the deluge, that we need to remember the times of joy in God's presence and and to remember to pray to the immovable rock who's our anchor in troubled waters. And if we're discouraged in a world of darkness, in a world broken by sin with pain, suffering, disease, and death, we're to look to God's light and truth and to lead us, and that light to lead us to Christ, our exceeding joy. Now, if our spirit is parched in a desert or overwhelmed by a deep water of despair, remember to remember to those that blueprint of dealing with despair. Remember to let those feelings go and to make yourself think and to pull yourself together by commanding yourself to hope in the Lord. For the day is coming when you will praise him again. So to to finish off the sermon I'd like to say that we should reflect Paul's words in Romans fifteen thirteen. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.